This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm Andy Wilson, along with co-host Dane Clark. How's it going, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you today? Good. And also Hugh Syme. How's it going, Hugh? Very well, thank you, Andrew. Good deal. Today, our guest is the legendary Rudy Sarzo. Rudy is a professional recording and worldwide performing artist with a career spanning nearly four decades. He arrived in L.A. in the late 70s and was a member of Quiet Riot. In the early 80s, Sarzo followed fellow Quiet Riot bandmate and guitarist Randy Rhodes and became a member of Ozzy Osbourne's band, where Rudy served from March of 81 to September of 82 and toured the world in support of Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman records. Rudy's bass playing can be heard on Ozzy's multi-million selling subsequent live albums, including tribute from those tours. In 2005, Rudy published a book, number one Kindle book, best-selling, uh, Off the Rails, Aboard the Crazy Train in the Blizzard of Oz. We'll get into that in a little bit. As a member, once again, a Quiet Riot uh, from September of 82 to January of 85, Rudy recorded the multi-platinum albums Metal Health, which was the first heavy metal album to debut on top of the Billboard album charts, and then Condition Critical, it's uh, the album that followed that one up. During this period, he headlined worldwide tours, was on MTV videos, and was everywhere as far as uh, top bass players go uh, during that time. As a member, uh, after that, um, as a member of uh, Whitesnake uh, from 87 to 94, Rudy was on uh, the multi-platinum album Slip of the Tongue, and he also toured um, in support of White State's 1987 album and was in the subsequent music videos that were all over MTV uh, during those years. His recordings that have been a part of Ozzy's career, Quiet Riot, and uh, White Snake have alone combined over 35 million copies worldwide. That's a lot of albums. Wow. Since 2004, Rudy has not slowed down. Having served as a touring and recording member of multiple bands, including Ingway Malmsteen's Rising Force, Dio, Blue Oyster Cult, Jeff Tate's Queensryche, and currently um, a member of the Guess Who. So without further ado, welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Rudy Sarzo. Well, I guess we're done. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> We've got a few questions, Rudy. So we <laughs> what an intro. First of all, I want to say hello. Uh, a buddy of mine, uh, my partner in the rhythm section for Mellencamp, who used to play with Ted Nugent, Johnny G. Johnny G, yeah. He says hello. He speaks so highly of you, man. He's, he, oh, he's awesome. He's, uh, yeah, we, we did some touring together uh, mm -hmm. back in the early uh, 2000s. I think it was called yep. The Rock Never Stop. Yeah, no, Johnny is a, he's a tremendous, tremendous uh, musician. Yeah, give him my best. I, I certainly will. When I looked at your, your profile today online, of course, that's the 
a place of a lot of misinformation too. Cuba? Yes. Yeah, man. Your name is, I think, goes on record as being the longest name I've ever heard. Oh, that name. Oh, yeah. My God. Yes. Yeah, so my birth certificate. Yeah. In Latin countries, you know, primarily uh, Catholic upbringing, they put together, you know, first of all, you got your, your name and it's usually your lineage. I'm, I'm like the third or fourth Rodolfo. Yeah. You know, like my grandfather was named Rodolfo and I think my great grandfather was definitely my dad. And uh, so the firstborn gets that, right? And then the, uh, on the saint's day, the day that you were born, whatever saint day that is, that's your middle name. And then you get your dad's, your, your father's last name, first last name. Then you get your mother's first last name. And then your father's second last name. So it just gets added on. You are Rudolfo Maximiliano Scarso Levea Riuzzi Chaumont. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? Yeah, it basically, Lucy, I'm home for short. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think Ricky Ricardo would have been just a, a, a better name. And thank God that I changed it to Rudy Sarzo because that would be a hell of an, an email address. No kidding. Boy, yeah. <laughs> good point. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also a good rock and roll name, man. Yeah, it's great. Rudy, you know, uh, how I got the name Rudy was when uh, I was Rodolfo or Rodolfito, which is like the, the little, you know, yeah. In, in, a, in, in Castilian, you can add, add an Ito to anything and it becomes smaller, you know? So I was Rodolfito. Then I, when, when I, when my family arrived in Miami in 1961, we were Rudolph. I was Rudolph. Okay. Uh, I can live with that. Or Rudolfo. Are you? D-O-L-P-H-O. Then when I moved to New Jersey, my family got relocated in 1963. My first day in school, you know, I'm sitting in the uh, desk and, and I, hear, I hear the teacher say, Rudy, Rudy. And I'm going like, I'm not paying attention because I never even heard that name before. And I happened to look, look up and he goes, yes, you. And I went, no, uh, Rudolph. I says, no, you're Rudy from now on. Oh, cool, man. Wow. There you go. That's how I became Rudy. Worked out well. <laughs> well, it worked out it worked great. Out well. So, Rudy, tell us how you initially became interested in music and when you started playing up until when you joined your first band. Yeah. I, okay. I know it's going to sound cliche, but uh, watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, 19, 1964, and, and, and the girls screaming at the Beatles, you know, something that for me, I just turned into a teenager. So, I began to get the raging hormones and, and I was invisible to girls, you know, because I couldn't even speak English at that time. I can barely speak now. And, uh, and, 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 you know, I'm trying to find a way how to be noticed, not yeah. to be invisible anymore, you know. And sure. also, you know, living in New Jersey, in West New York, you know, there were so many different ethnicities and it, it, there was a lot of separation, especially with the kids, like in school, like the Irish kid really didn't talk to the Polish kid and, you know, and so on and everybody. And I was just, I was really a minority among minorities, you know, being Cuban, you know, and, and what happened was rock and roll brought everybody together. Yeah. Yeah. For the sure. First time, you know, sure. and it was like, Oh, okay. I get this. I get this. This see. I can actually speak broken English, but if I play a Beatles song really well, I'm in the band. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. 
music does bring people together. Did you play guitar first or did you go straight to bass or? No, no, I, I, I didn't even know what, what, what a bass guitar was, even though I was looking at Paul McCartney, but that really didn't look like a bass to me. It looked like a violin, you know, but what is he playing, you know? But uh, so I, I already had a guitar. Okay. Uh, that, that Christmas, my, my parents got my brother and me, we shared one guitar. And uh, it was an old craftsman Spiegel catalog, kind of like what it is now with Amazon. You order something online. Well, uh, us was like Spiegel catalog. You write it in, you send the money, and you got a box <laughs> you sure. know, within a couple of weeks, you know, at, at home. And uh, so, yeah, I was playing guitar, but very poorly. And my parents didn't have any money for to give us lessons. So I was just like picking things by ear and struggling with tuning and all of that you know things that could have been solved by something like this you know <laughs> yeah. a tuner, you know we didn't have that um as a matter of fact i, I recall later on in, when i was playing clubs that we had tuning forks and oh, we sure. were tuned on stage we're like to an a pitch it an a and then everybody tuned to that fork while everybody's yelling and screaming at us you know play honky tongue woman or whatever you know and uh so a a it wasn't until I moved back to Miami from New Jersey and I went back, uh, I, I went to my neighborhood garage band because each, each, each block had bands, you know, on my side of the street, I belonged to that band, you know, in the middle, middle of the, uh, of the block. And I went in, introduced myself. And uh, I said, you know, well, I want to join your band. I said, well, if you want to join the band, you got to play bass because we got too many guitar players. So that's how I became a bass player. Uh, so I got named Rudy necessity. by the teacher and I became a bass player because somebody said, you got to play bass if you want to mm. be in the band. I don't think you're alone. I think a lot of guitar players ended up on bass because they already had a guitar player. Yeah, it's <laughs> so one of them. And, you know, it wasn't until recently that it hit me. That I said, wait a minute. Somebody decided what I was going to become and I had no part in the decision. It was kind of like, an, uh, you know, it was like, the, well, it's either this or the highway. And so I got really upset. And then I started playing guitar again. And then I realized, you know what? I love the bass. What the hell? I went back to the bass. <laughs> I was asking Dean before you figured out how to um, co come into this conversation. And I said, I watched a solo of yours. Very impressive, first of all. But I thought, this guy was a guitar player at one point because you play, you have the dexterity of a guitar player. You also do cording, which a lot of bass players do, but you, you feature a lot of cording in your solo work. So I, I guessed you were a guitar player. Yeah. And, but, but, you know, for me, a bass solo, I mean, there's, 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 there's musicians that I'm a fan of that are great at playing, you know, do, doing a solo, solo mm -hmm. section. Uh, I was never, the bands that I played in were not really geared towards a bass solo. No, you know, yeah. With Ozzy, you know, yeah, you know, it was like, you know, when I played with Ozzy, it was, and I got to tell you, the, the, the bass parts, whether they're Geezer Butler bass parts with Ozzy, which I did a lot of Black Sabbath with him, especially recording Speak of the Devil, or, or the Bob Faisley bass lines on Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman, they're very melodic and there's a lot of information in there. So, you know, it's kind of like, 
there's a lot of notes in the, within the set. So what else are you going to do for a bass solo? You already, the whole, the whole show to me was a bass solo. You know? <laughs> and, but a tasteful one. Right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Melodic, melodic. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. help that. That's what makes those songs sound the way that they do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Rudy, take us back, if you will. I kind of see, you know, uh, your career, the quiet riot in the beginning and then kind of melding in with Randy Rhodes with the Aussie years and then back to quiet riot. There seems to be that quiet riot thread, obviously, that kind of represents itself um, multiple times. But Take us back to the beginning of, of Quiet Riot and kind of how you got involved in it um, prior to it, you know, blowing up worldwide. Yeah, Quiet Riot was a uh, local band in Los Angeles in the late 70s and the last rock band to get out of to get signed out of that scene in the late in the, in the 70s, mid, mid 70s to late 70s was Van Halen. It seemed like that the, the, the door was shut right after Van Halen got signed, in comes punk and new wave. And we couldn't get signed. But then again, you know, bands that were later successful in the 80s, such as a version of Motley Crue that was actually called London, couldn't get signed either. Rat, known as Mickey Rat couldn't get signed. Dawkins couldn't get signed. No, nobody really got signed. Great, uh, great white and, and, and so on. So, you know, we were all struggling and we were being considered as dinosaurs by, by the music industry mm. in the seventies. And then, you know, late seventies, when I, I joined the band in 78 and, um, 79, it dissolved when Randy left to join Ozzy. And then, uh, there for a period there i was going between projects you know different bands and uh i was even a, even a member of the band called angel for uh right right for 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 a few months and uh, also playing with kevin dubrow and his own band called dubrow and uh which is which there's a link to to after randy passed away uh, I get a phone call from Kevin. He had written a song originally when Randy left the band called Thunderbird. And, and I was the bass, you know, I was the first bass player to actually, you know, I came up with the bass parts and all that for, for that song. And then I, I left the band and, and joined Ozzy. Then Randy passes away and Kevin decides that he wants to record for an upcoming project that was yet to be to be officially titled because you know it became quite a riot but the 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 label wanted to name the band something else they had names like wild oscar as an idea for what wild oscar what became quite a riot <laughs> sounds like an old man or something that lives yeah, down the know, street wild you know? oscar. yeah yeah exactly i got your wild oscar right here <laughs> <laughs> And Kevin, Kevin thought that, you know, he had gotten the blessings from Randy and myself uh, right before Randy passed away about renaming the band Dubrow as Quiet Riot. And of course, you know, we say, yeah, of course, you know, even though the band did not become officially Quiet Riot until we all signed the record deal. Yeah, there were no live shows without that 
version of the Metal Health version of Quiet Riot. Right. That, you know, until the album was released and then later on, you know, March 83. And we uh, we, we started playing live. And uh, so I, I went in during an Aussie break and recorded Thunderbird in the studio with them. I was still a member of Ozzy at this time. And, but since Randy had passed away, it was very difficult to go on stage and get some joy in, in my music playing because, you know, Randy wasn't there and that changed everything. Uh, you know, yeah. that, that, that took the wind out of our sails, you know. Sure. I was listening to that tribute record um, this morning. I've always, as a kid, I listened to that live record and I, I've always been an Aussie fan, but that's the record. I, I still go back to that one. I think it's kind of the essence of Ozzy solo. I don't know if it's kind of like it's still early enough for him, but this, it's just, it's such a good sounding record. Yeah. One of the things that, that we had that, uh, because we, we did about two or three officially that aired, there were definitely two well, one Westwood one and the other one King Biscuit with, with Randy. But there was a third one that was recorded in Montreal, which is what the tribute album is credited to be because that was never released, the, you know, up until the tribute album was released. And, you know, there's a controversy among the fans who actually have put the waveforms on Pro Tools and, you know, compare shows next to each other and they make certain claims. I'm too busy for yeah, that. They got too much time on their hands, don't they? <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Come on, what? man. Right. Yeah. yeah find and, something uh, else to do. So, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, most of our shows were pretty much identical. You know, there might've been some deviation from Randy's playing or, or mm. Tommy, but they, it was basically this, you know, we, we took it to that certain level. Sure. And even though even though we did not play with a click track, there was you know there was a certain you know Tommy was really good at setting tempos, very consistent from night to night. The same thing when we played in Whitesnake, very excellent, excellent setting setting tempos. So there was Certainly. never really a need for a click track, you know. But but it was all very very consistent. Plus, Tommy's hair is maybe one of the best hairdos on a drummer in the history of uh, rock and roll too. He's fun to watch. And that hairdo is fantastic. Speaking of <laughs> watching Tommy, this first, you know, like when I first started playing with him, I realized that I could not look at his head because when he goes like this, his hair goes against the beat. It's like, oh, right. yeah, sure. <laughs> sure, it's going north that while the beat's going south. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Man, I've always admired Man. the way you two guys played together. Tommy's one of my favorite drummers. And, yeah. Uh, I saw him with uh, Black Oak back in the day. And, you know, we've all, there's not a drummer that's got a double bass set that didn't learn to go doodle the dot, that, tr that bass drum triplet that he does. Everybody's, yeah. everybody's learned that from him. But, uh, so the way you guys lock is great. I've got a question. As a drummer, what other drummer that you've worked with over the years have you felt that kind of relationship with that, that you guys have? Uh, definitely, definitely uh, uh, Frankie Benelli, because Frankie was the first drummer that I played with that was really at a uh, uh, arena level. You know, he had already been playing around town in, in Florida, uh, South Florida, the Fort Lauderdale area, which is where, where he was living when I, when I met him. I, I met him on my birthday 
1972, after watching him and his band opening out for David Bowie the night before at a place called Pirate's World. And I never heard of the band, but I was super impressed with his playing. And uh, the following day, I was at a club called The Flying Machine. And somebody says, hey, that's one of the guys from Ginger that played last night with Bowie. And I went up to, um, to compliment him. And uh, I thought he was the bass player. So I was, I was raving about his drummer. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> finally, he reaches out his hand and says, hi, I'm Frankie. I'm the drummer. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> he let you go on yeah, for a while. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and also and condolences to you, uh, Rudy. Uh, yeah, for thank you. The loss of yeah, you. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, for 40, uh, 48 years. Yeah, 48 years friendship, you know, and bandmate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. So we were talking earlier today that the three of us were before we started talking to you. And, you know, I was, I was, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a guy like you in the eighties that was there during those Aussie years. And then the quiet riot thing that was just like, you know, the number, you know, number one album on the charts. Huge. What, who did you guys knock off the top? Was it thriller at the time or it was something big at the time? Right. Yeah. Thriller. Uh, I mean, (laughs) wow. Just that alone, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then the white snake years, like you were there for like, just most musicians, I think would dream of having one of those right to happen in their whole career. And there you were in the eighties, you had three of them. It's like, you were just hogging them all, man. I mean, what, a, what an amazing opportunity Actually, for I, opportunities. I played on five consecutive multi-platinum albums in from wow. 80, 81 to, to 90. Wow. Yeah. Congrats, man. man. That's that's amazing. Yeah. But you know what? I'm so blessed to have played with some of the greatest musicians, you know, that came came out of that era. So uh, I'm only as good as the people I play with. Sure. (laughs) Sure. So coming out of the Quiet Riot success, take us through to the to the White Snake years and kind of how that all transpired and and um, became what it became. Yeah, it's it's. And, and, you know, it's usually a sequence of, uh, sequence of events. Me joining Ozzy was because of Randy. Randy, you know, told uh, Sharon Ozzy about me. Me joining Quiet Riot was because I already been in the band and already I played in Dubrow with Kevin. So, and, and Frankie, you know, I knew Frankie from, you know, for 10 years prior. And, and Whitesnake, Whitesnake was a support band in 1984 for Quiet Riot, Condition Critical Tour. So I got to know all, you know, the band really well. And, and the, last, the last night of the tour, we had a party for Whitesnake and we all got together. And, and as we were, you know, saying our goodbyes, David gives me a hug and whispers in my ear, we're going to be playing together soon. And I said, I had no, you know, okay. what are you talking about? Sure. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I, I, I had plans to leave the band and I had given notice to the guys in the band and management that at the end of the tour, I, I was going to leave. Uh, and then I left the band in 85 and Tommy and I, we started working on a project and then we get a phone call from, from, uh, from White Snake's management. And we went in the office and they offer us the, uh, was that true to be in the band? Yeah. To be in the band. And, 
And since Sykes was still in the band, and I, you know, this is nothing against Sykes, but but I knew of the conflict between David and John. And it was like, wow, I just left a situation. I don't want to go into another situation because what's the point? So I declined on the offer. And eventually Tommy did too. And then about a couple of years later, after the album was done, again, David's putting the whole band together. And I get a call from John Kolabner. And, you know, just to go in and, and make the video, basically. And so Tommy and I did, you know, and because it was to, personally, it was safe because now the only remaining member of Whitesnake is, is David, <laughs> you know, and I say, okay, there's no conflict in the band now. Okay. So, so, uh, we show up and Vivian was there and Adrian Vandenberg and I met Tony there and, and it was like, wow, this, this, this feels really, really good. You know, the whole vibe and, and everything about it. So. That's when, again, we were, we were offered to join the band again. And I said, okay, now it feels like a safe, safe place. Well, interesting, because so, so you turned it down once and then you took it. it. The same thing happened with Ozzy. Like I read somewhere when you were sleeping on the floor when you were an angel, you said no to Ozzy the first time he asked you to join his yeah. band too. And then you, yes. that's interesting that you'd have two yeah. of the, you know, two bands like that where you had to go, man, nah, this ain't not right now, but you know, later. Yeah. Okay. I will. Yeah. Well, with Ozzy was less, less than a 24 hour period turnaround <laughs> with white snake was about a couple of years. Oh, was it that uh, quick? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and with deal, actually the same thing happened with Ronnie because I got a call from Wendy to come in and, and join, you know, to go in the studio to record master of the moon with Ronnie James deal. And, as I'm talking with her, I'm in the middle of the Inve Monsing tour. And it was like, wow, I wish I could do this, but I've committed to finish this tour, you know, with Inve. And then I say, well, you know, I, I would love to be a member uh, once I'm done with my commitments to Inve. And, and I did, you know, uh, I, I called them when, when I was done with the tour and I joined the band. But by then, Master of the Moon, the record was recorded. Wow. So there's another one that you've had. That's another one. Come in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Must be nice to yeah. be wanted by all those people, man. I mean, that says something about your playing. It's such a blessing to play with such great musicians. You know, Ronnie, play, playing with Dio, that was, that was something else. I what, a, what a little screamer, man. He was something else. So obviously during the, uh, during the White Stink years, Hugh was involved with, um, you know, album cover work and whatnot with that band. Um, and, and obviously the, the one record there, Slip, on the, Slip of the Tongue, uh, that you played on. Um, but uh, Hugh's going to talk a little bit about record covers and stuff. We always like to talk to, talk to our guests about uh, their favorites and stuff like that. So I'll let Hugh take it. Hugh actually also did uh, a cover that I recently played on four songs. I think it's an EP. That's what the kids are calling it today. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, Gustavo Carmo, Carmo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I played on that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know. Gustavo. Now, he and his brother have a band called Versover. You know, I just, when I first heard these guys play, I was so impressed. Both of them, you know, he and his brother. They're just, did you know his brother? Only only on, online briefly. I never yeah. got to play with him, but, uh, but making the record with Gustavo was just really a great experience. Yeah. 
yeah yeah well and brian brian uh, tishi plays drums on that too correct yes that he project? does and derek serenian yeah. plays keyboards got, got a pretty good group of guys together for yeah. that one, didn't he? yeah definitely yeah so i know you weren't involved in sort of the artwork for quiet riot that was directly me and pasha and spencer and and uh and i also uh worked pretty directly with david on the first album for white snake but as a musician do you pay much attention to, to as a musician and as a per, as a consumer and fan do you, are you motivated by artwork yes yes but but let me ask you something is that you who who uh who did the the metal health album cover no no that oh, was okay. no i did the i did the two that followed um qr3 and oh, okay got yeah. it got it yeah it. yeah yeah because actually we we i we were involved on the uh, on the first album cover uh the band there was a, there was a, a particular uh concept that we wanted to put across especially the um i came up with the uh, the universal headbanger oh yeah I was, yeah i was really into alexander dumas uh the man in the iron mask yeah yeah and that was basically the concept we wanted a a metal head because this is okay Ra uh, randy and i every time we would be on a break from touring we would go straight from the airport coming back to la go to kevin dubrow's apartment and head out to the rainbow bar and grill right yeah. and just hang out and party with him right okay as, so, as one does in la yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah especially yeah. in 81 82 so one time uh, uh randy was telling kevin about these these kids, these fans in England that would go and slam their heads against the stage, mm. the headbangers. So that's, that's, that was the concept that Kevin took for Metal Health. Yeah. The song, Bang Your Head, Headbangers, you know. And uh, so that was the theme, Metal Health. It was all about Metal Health and headbanging and all that. So that's why we wanted the cover to represent that spirit. Well, it worked. It's a great cover. Um, I, I, I'm ashamed to say I don't remember the illustrator, but I used, I used to admire his work immensely. Um, yeah. Yeah. How, how, how we decided on, on the shot, it was that the illustrator uh, took photos of himself in different positions. Yeah. You know, like that and whatever, you know. And, and the one that's on, on the cover, that's exactly the position in one of the sheets and we said that's the one so we yeah. just, you know we pencil and and gave it back to him and then he he colorized it yeah yeah that's right that's how he worked too he would do photo uh, he'd do a photo under uh, under painting and then he would colorize on top of that yeah um the, the work i've done with white snake and uh you guys was all painted on canvas so it was a different approach slip, slip of the tongue i love that cover Thanks, man. Well, when I did the medallion for the original White Snake, the you know the the one with the stone background, it, it's you know you, as an illustrator, I, I just knew after meeting David that you know this this guy is very British and he liked heraldry and he liked British herald heritage and so on. So I thought something pretty regal had to had to work for this guy because David the man. I I, I very soon started calling him Lord Coverdale just because that's yeah. how he. You know. <laughs> I thought a cover that, you know, spoke to that aspect of his character or something that looked like a family crest or, a, you know, a, 
Yeah. Anyways, we had no idea that was going to catch on to be the quintessential kind of thumbprint for the band for decades to come. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, at, at first sight, it reminded me also of like a Roman. Yeah. Roman emblem, you know. Like Calig- Caligula's front door. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Caligula's front door. Okay. That brings some images. I was going to ask another question. Yeah, I can't yeah. think of what I was going to say now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, put it down in a song, Dave. I might have to do that this evening. <laughs> so we always like to also ask, like, what are some of your favorite record covers, too, that you can share with us? Oh, my God. There's so many. I mean, it seemed like like some we I, I used to buy records in the 60s and 70s just because I love the cover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think if you come up as a fan and as a buyer of music and you, you're motivated at the store by what's on the shelf, that eventually comes into your career as a musician as to how you want your own covers to look. So tell me about the ones that made you stop and look twice. Well, one cover that ha- had a, a, an impact in my life somehow, some way, was I wanted, I wanted to get my father, this is like in the, uh, in the 60s, Something for for Father's Day, but I also wanted to get something that I could use. Okay, you know I had limited means. I'm a Cuban refugee here, you know, so I gotta work with this. So I really like Polar Bear and the Raiders. So oh, yeah. I got Polar sure, Bear and the Raiders' greatest hits, which is basically a bunch of guys wearing leotards. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the cover. <laughs> so I wrap it up and I give it to my dad. And he looked at it and he goes, ¿Qué es esto? You know, what is this? You know, and, and he goes and he throws it away. I bet you dug it out of the trash, though, didn't you? That had <laughs> hungry and kicks on it. Come on now. <laughs> That's a great record. Speaking of Caligula's front door. <laughs> yeah. I, I always loved the Roger Dean artwork. Seriously. Yeah. Especially, you know, and, and I believe Weissnake did, did this too. They were able to, to transcend with Roger Dean, yes, brought the artwork on stage, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and Weissnake did too, you know, that, uh, that 87 album cover, you know, not only was it on T-shirts and, of course, the album cover, but also it was a, it was pretty much represented on stage, you know? Yeah. And, and <laughs> and a perfect kick drum too, you know. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then we did the slip of the tongue tour, and David decides that it's a great idea to hire the the uh, set designer for I believe it was Temple of Doom, one of those one of those Indiana Jones movies, which ah. there's a scene where they're trying to cross an abyss and you have to find the rocks because the, the rocks were being camouflaged by the angle that you look at, at, at the bridge. And then you find it when you look at a certain angle, which meant that, that the whole stage was marbleized, mm-hmm. like the cover of the 87 yeah. record, marble, right? But it's the whole stage. So when you're standing on the risers, and you look down on the floor, you lose perspective of because it's one blob of marble. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, oh, and that's another thing. 
the stairs, the guy who got the approval of the steps was Adrian Vandenberg. He's oh. like six foot six. So, you know, <laughs> he goes over to the place where they were building the stage and he comes back and says, yeah, they're perfect, right? So first day of pre-production, I look at the steps and I'm going, I need a rope <laughs> you know, to go up that far apart. Like this. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially in the dark, right? And yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, come well, on. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of that. Okay. So, you know, the last, the last song of the set was still of the night. And for performance purpose, I will get on top of one of the risers when, and then the, the song ends still of the night, still of the night, still of the night. Right. And, what I would do is the, it will black out, but before it blacks out, I would jump, right? And, and from the riser to the stage. <laughs> One of these times, they, it blacks out too early. And so I'm in midair and I got no, no bearings of where I'm actually at in the jump because it's like one big blob yeah, of, wow. of marble and I land. I, I fall. I fall flat, right? Oh, no. But I fell flat on the base. The base is facing the... It's, uh, it's, it's trapped between me and the stage, right? So all, so you hear, still the night, still the night, still the night. And it's supposed to be silence. And all of a sudden, you hear this, the huge hum. Ooh. And my face <laughs> is making on stage. And I can't get up right. because Adrian is on top of me laughing pointing at me <laughs> with all the lights on you know as we're, that's great <laughs> that was our encore right there <laughs> that's great that's good story man. oh yeah <laughs> you mean things don't always go perfectly that's what you're saying yeah. right yeah i mean it, you know it, it happens once a tour but it lasts a lifetime you know, <laughs> right it's traumatic experience very traumatic yeah so if you would, um, as a, we always like to ask questions as a fan. So what was your first attended concert as a fan or, or series of concerts that you went to as a fan? Yeah, the one that I can remember was actually Vanilla Fudge mm. at mm. Bayfront Park Auditorium in Coconut Grove. Very yeah. cool. It changed my life, actually, watching Tim Bogart playing. Oh, Tim and Carmine were a great team. Fantastic. Yeah. So in your career, you know, if there, if somebody asks you, Rudy, you know, you played so many shows over the years and, and in this long successful career, what are two or three of the shows that really stick out? Like, you know, either you were on stage with somebody you couldn't believe you were on with, or just in front of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. What are those two or three shows that you're like, these are the, the pinnacle shows that really stick out? Okay. And they're all festivals. <laughs> okay. First one would be, with Ozzy, uh, Day Under Green, 1981, July 4th, uh, with Ozzy. Yeah, we were like the second band to come on. We, were, we went on like 10, 4, 30 in the morning and only supposed to do like 30 minutes set. And we went over so well that, that uh, Bill Graham had to go into our dressing room and bring us back out again and to, uh, to add like, you know, three songs to our set. Uh, I, I that's that's when I got a glimpse of what what that Aussie band was about to achieve later on with the following tour, Diary of a Madman. Uh, the other one was early on Choir Riot. We did the US Festival in 1983. 
And we were the first band on again. <laughs> and uh, it was a phenomenal uh, response. And we knew, okay, this is, this is something, you know, we got something going on here. And then after that, I would say um, playing Donington 1990 with, uh, with Whitesnake on the Slip of the Tongue tour. You know, I've, I've always loved playing in England and actually being able to headline that show with Aerosmith, a special guest, and Poison, and some other great bands. It was just uh, Thunder was one of the other bands that was, uh, that was very special. Awesome, man. Awesome. Now, we, we focused on some of that specific bands, um, but obviously, you know, Blue Oyster Cult, mm. um, Guess Who, what, what can you, uh, you know, how do you decide who to work with in some ways? I mean, at some point, it's like, or, or who, who else would you like to work with, maybe, or who's on your wish list? I think a decision like that is definitely mutual, you know, it's, it's, sure. it's not just me, you know. It's like people ask me, why don't you go back to that band? I go, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm right. going to show up with suitcase yeah. and my bass. Okay, <laughs> little Johnny on Twitter wants me to play with you guys again. So here I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got a question for you. So you've been in this business all these years. You've also been married for 36 years. Now, that's kind of yeah. a rare thing in the rock and roll lifestyle that you lead. Tell us about that, man. It's, it's, actually, it's actually very, very simple. It's, uh, you know, you have love. You have uh, love, number one. Then laughter and joy and just you know friends friendship trust trust factor all of the above you know i am really blessed i'm really blessed yeah. in fact i've been doing this at this level next year is going to be 40 years and i met my wife 40 years ago next year wow so that's... we've been together for all this time and it's just such a joy and you know it's a blessing and i can't even imagine my life without her in it you know that's awesome, man. That's awesome. You don't hear yeah. that every day. That's on that. God yeah. bless and you guys. Fun, fun fact, fun fact. My wife, uh, we had just gotten married uh, in 1984, and she happened to be at a, a restaurant, and, and there was a scout for a video by Whitesnake called uh, Love Ain't No Stranger. So the scout spots my wife and says, uh, do you have any acting or modeling? He says, yeah, I'm, I'm a model and blah, 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 blah. So she winds up as the snake girl on the Love Ain't No Stranger video before I joined the band. <laughs> oh, wow. Huh. That's great. Little fun fact. Yeah. Well, the last time I saw you, you were, you were out playing with the Guess Who and the band sounded fantastic. And I know you guys did some new music not too long ago. Uh, Guess Who music, right? Yes. Yes. There was a new record. I got to play on three songs. Two songs, two songs. Yeah, those were the only two songs left. I, it's, you know, it was an album that it took about a couple of years to make. So, you mm -hmm. know, uh, it was with the original bass player and then Michael Devin, who is the current bass player for Whitesnake. And between uh, Michael and I, we were subbing. And then I became the official bass player. And then there were two songs left. So I recorded those. Yeah. So any other projects or anything else you want to share with us that's uh, coming up in your future? Yeah, I'm doing like music related, but not musical projects because my, my musical uh, commitment is to the guess who. But I'm always doing, pro you know, playing on other people's records, especially nowadays where it's so, so easy to do. You know, you get the files through, you know, Dropbox or whatever, and then you sure. play on it and, and, and then you deliver them. And, and I have my radio show on Munchens of Rock Radio, uh, Six Degrees of Sarzo, 
and uh, we just extended to uh, it's it's on the Dash network, but the Dash did a partnership with uh, Spotify, so we're on demand on Spotify, and I'm very happy about that. I'm curious to know: Do you ever get to go back to Cuba, or do you do you have friends in Cuba, musician friends down there? I only ask because. Peter Cardinelli, who's a really interesting bass player, a great bass player out of Toronto, also manages and produces other bands. And he brought me in on a Brenda Navarrete album. And she plays three sacred drums, you know, those three drums that are... And also Hilario Duran, a really good jazz piano player. No, no, I haven't gone back. Uh, you know what? Okay, this is what happened. When my family left Cuba, we lost our, our Cuban citizenship. I was actually hmm. stateless yeah, uh, yeah. until I became a citizen in 1982, right, right after I came back from an Aussie tour. That would have been 1981, 82. And uh, so I am not any longer a Cuban citizen. I don't have dual, dual citizenship. And I really don't want to go back to my country of birth as a tourist. Mm. I see. Understandable. You know, so... Well, Rudy, tell us about your other career as a digital animator. Yeah, I actually not. I mean, I am not animating myself, even though I'm involved with animation projects. Uh, I got Lasix and I went back into playing and got back the joy of, of playing again. But but yes, I am trained as a 3D animator. Yeah. Do you work? In, huh. Do you work in programs like Maya or Cinema 4D? Yeah, actually, I, I started. I started with 3ds Max, and then I went over to soft image which was my favorite at the time because it's very easy to work out with especially lip syncing uh and then soft image was bought out by autodesk who owned at one time all three of the big ones so i started working with maya and then after that i just i i i, I did not continue getting deeper and deeper into it yeah i i almost can't wrap my head around maya as a as a painter and illustrator i find it so i mean it's it's a lifetime of learning just to know maya properly yeah you know? but i think cinema 4d is very user-friendly blender is quite fun too yeah. yeah yeah but but since i was trained on uh, see the reason why i was trained with soft image is because at one point avid owned uh, uh, soft image i see and then yeah then they they sold it to to maya i mean to autodesk uh but you know there was a program for that with the people that i were working with directly at, in avid at the company uh because i was using pro tools yeah so it was kind of like uh well you know I, I and i see that eventually as the future like uh you know let's say you have a band and the band will have like guys who like concentrate on making, you know, the production of the music and then guys that, that concentrate on creating the production of the video, you know, especially nowadays when you're dealing with less touring and yeah. more, more online market. Yeah. Of yeah. The group. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Rudy. We really appreciate your Thank time. You. Thank Glad you. we were able to connect. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank nice talking yeah. to you, Thank Rudy. You. Fantastic, buddy. Bye. Have a good Bye -bye. weekend. Bye-bye.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.